0: Hello everybody, I'm your host, Hal Curtis, and I'd like to welcome you to The Space Industry by SatSearch, where we share stories about the companies taking us into orbit. In this podcast, we delve into the opinions and expertise of the people behind the commercial space organisations of today, who could become the household names of tomorrow. Before we get started with the episode, remember you can find out more information about the suppliers, products and innovations that are mentioned in this discussion on the global marketplace for space at satsearch.com. I'm joined today by Tony Schoenher and Alexander Reisner from SatSearch member company Impulsion. Impulsion is a space technology company based in Austria. It was founded in 2016 and today focuses on advanced propulsion technologies for small satellites. Uh, Today we're going to talk a little bit about Field Emission Electric Propulsion or FEEP. This is a form of propulsion that uses liquid metal as a propellant and that enables a satellite to change orbits, reposition for different applications, uh, manoeuvre out of certain paths, and, and so on. Before we start, hello and welcome, Tony and Alexander. Thanks for being here today. Uh, could you each just say a little bit about what you do at Impulsion and maybe if there's anything you want to add to that introduction I just gave?
1: Yeah, happy to. Good morning. Thanks for having us. It's really great to be here on this podcast. My name is Alex. I founded the company Impulsion five years ago. We just celebrated our fifth birthday, and uh, I did not imagine five years ago you know, where we would be right now, supplying multiple constellations and customers all over the world with Propulsion Solutions. So I'm really happy to talk to you about what's going on in the market right now.
0: Excellent. Thank you.
2: So Hello from me. Uh, I'm Tony. I'm the product manager for the Nano family of our thrusters, that includes the heritage product of the Impulsion Nano, which is now with more than sixty units in space, and as well as the new products that are coming soon to the market, that include a product called the AR3, which will be suitable for thrust vectoring. And uh, I joined the company three years ago. Um, it's been a bumpy ride, but a good ride, and um, it's great to see that the technology is coming. Uh, alive as as we go along.
0: Well, fantastic, guys! You know, congratulations on the progress and happy birthday to Impulsion as well. Right, so let's get into the the technical details then of the uh, of class technology that we're talking about today. So first up, I was wondering if you could please tell us a little bit about the history of FEEP technology, sort of touching on the maturity in different applications and how this has driven the development at, at Impulsion?
1: Yeah, I guess I'll take this one, having been uh, following this um, or part of this development for almost two decades. So when I joined this technology development program uh, in 2008, it was already a, an old technology in the sense that it was driven uh, by a technological pull from the European Space Agency. Right there, we were uh, flying uh, liquid metal ion sources for huge um, scientific missions, but never for commercial applications. Right? So I'm coming from this kind of academic background, right? developing the scientific instruments with liquid red lion sources. And then over the uh, years, we developed that into a uh, propulsion technology used to really find precision scientific satellites uh, still together with the European Space Agency. And then in uh, 2016, as you mentioned in the beginning, right, uh, we figured you know, with all the constellations coming up, uh, there was a need to position small satellites. And we had in the lab already a propulsion system that was meant to produce a precise small thrust right, that was suitable for this application. And yeah, that's when I changed, uh, kind of switched gears from an academic career into uh, an entrepreneurial career and um, I founded Impulsion. Gathered a great team like Tony, you know, and uh, forty-five other uh, great engineers, and um, kept on developing this into an industrial product. Right, with the first uh, units um, coming directly out of uh, the ESA development uh, stage, and then you know further developments going, having more of an industrial approach,
0: of course. Right, fantastic. How challenging did you did you find it to take the technology from, you know, the sort of ESA research area into, into the industry? Well, I
1: have to be honest with you, um, a, I completely underestimated that in the beginning, right? I thought like, well, we have a working prototype, you know, why not just, you know, sell it, right? Uh, but that's not how it works, right? So the phase of an actual industrial product development and then the huge effort of industrializing something, right? So putting, putting up the production, I mean, we spent millions and years coming up and setting up a production that is today ISO 9001 certified and audited by, you know, major space, um, platform providers, but, you know, setting that up, spinning in automotive technologies, you know, in production, airplane, you know, production, uh, measurements and so on into the space industry was really, as Tony mentioned, I mean, it was a bumpy ride, but it's just super interesting, right. And, uh, uh, it was not something I would have anticipated to be the major uh, kind of factor in the beginning when I founded the company. But uh, now that it's kind of done, you know, it's uh, kind of logical. right? So, um, yeah.
0: Oh, interesting. Well, I think that's maybe a topic we could talk about another time <laughs> with all those different aspects. So to bring it back to the technology, the the you know, the feet thrusters, we're... An important aspect of this technology, I know, is thrust vectoring. It's the ability to control the direction of thrust in different situations. It's one of the main requirements in attitude and orbit control systems in space missions. For that specific setting, are there any any advantages to using feet technology?
2: Yes, so indeed, the, the thrust vectoring capability is something that we are now introducing, uh, within our new product line, and it's been something that that has been around for as long as people are flying spacecraft with propulsion, because essentially every propulsion system has an intrinsic offset of the thrust vector. So there, there are necessities to compensate for that. And there are different ways to, to do that. So if you, if you're staying close to earth, um, you can use the earth's magnetic field in order to orient your spacecraft a little bit. If you go further away, you can use cold gas systems to, to steer Back to the to the first direction that you wanted to, or if you're on a larger spacecraft, you can you can put the propulsion system on a gimbal mechanism um, in order to basically turn the entire thruster into the direction that you want to shoot at. But all of these solutions are heavy and cost intensive, and especially when it comes to, to mechanisms, um, I was always told by by uh, my former colleagues at ESA. The best mechanism is not to use any mechanism at all because it's very prone to failures and there are a lot of difficulties in in making it happen in a way that at some point the mechanism becomes more complex and more expensive than the actual propulsion system that you're trying to direct. So in FEEP, we have the advantage of being able to control the thrust vector just by shaping the electric field that is used for the acceleration. Of the extracted ion beam, which means that if we, if we just adjust the, uh, the electric field by putting a different electric potential in the area where the extraction of the ions is happening, we can redirect the beam without the need for any mechanical parts, without the need for anything heavy or complex. It just adds a little bit of a complexity to, to the PPU in the high voltage setup of the thruster. But you're basically able to add this thrust vectoring capability without adding a lot of system overhead onto your spacecraft. And the advantage here further is that you can put it on, on the spacecraft without designing or redesigning the spacecraft in order to compensate for the propulsion system, which makes it also very easy on the integrator side than to say, okay, well, I, I put the the propulsion system there and you don't have to worry about it, it's rigidly there. And if the uh, um, performance of the, the thruster then uh, is suitable for the mission, it's uh, it's really nice for the, the satellite integrator then to say, okay, this, this is it, this, this is all I need to do. And of course, this is very interesting for the market and also for um, scientific missions, Um, especially ESA and and all the other agencies, because it saves a lot of mass on on small satellites, right? So if you don't have to have a cold gas system. If you don't have to have a a gimbal, or at least not so much propellant for the cold gas system, then you can save mass and that might even be enabling certain missions that were unthinkable prior to, to having that capacity. So if you think about small satellites, especially CubeSats that don't really have a lot of mass, don't have a lot of volume. Being able to redirect the thrust vector within certain performance limits is certainly a emission enabling technology. So that's that's really uh, what we're we're we striving for here. Also, if you save mass on the spacecraft, you can also use that for additional payload. So even if your spacecraft is not changing in overall, but well, you have more base and mass for the things that you want to do with the spacecraft
0: eventually. Excellent yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So obviously as some of the um, potential applications and constellation management, etc expands and the, the more advanced capabilities are brought in, there's the opportunity for satellites to use multiple thrusters in on a single satellite. How do you test for issues where there may be thrust vector misalignment and ensure that uh, applications such as orbital transfer there's no problems with, with such misalignment? Yeah. What we do when we produce our thrusters
2: is that we characterize all the thrusters to the level of detail that is required for this. So we go through a nominal acceptance test campaign where we test for the typical environmental loads. So we have uh, thermal cycling, we have a vibration test to check for for failures in in workmanship, so to say. But we also have a performance characterization right before we ship any thruster. Where well, we also characterize the thrust vector offset to, to a point where we can communicate that to customers if there's any issue with that. So a customer knows exactly where the thrust vector would be after um, he receives the, the thrusters and then can plan accordingly in order to switch thrusters around or, or even if they have several missions, they can also switch thrusters between missions in order to to compensate for anything there. Of course, we are trying to always keep the thrust vector offset as minimal as possible, but reality sometimes tells us a different story there. And then if you have the capacity of being able to to control the thrust vector, of course, then it gives even less worry for the, for the integrator because then over life or the COG of the satellite changes, for example, they can, they can readjust for their thrust vector there and
0: then that really aids in making the mission successful over time. Right, fantastic. With the the thrusters that impulsion provides or, you know FEEP thrusters in general, FEEP technology in general, is it possible to use the systems in pulsed mode for precision station keeping or, or similar uses?
2: Yeah, so the advantage of FEEP technology is that the 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 time that it takes in order to get to to a thrust is very, very short. And it's also very stable. So it takes a few seconds if you command the thrust in order to get to the point where it stays stably at that thrust level. And if you shut it off directly afterwards, it's no issue for for the thruster. So if if you only need a small thrust level for a few seconds, this is certainly something within the the capacity of the feed technology. And at the same time, you could also fire it for hours or hundreds of hours continuously if you decided to do so. And that makes it very versatile in in how you can operate it. It's not directly a pulsed mode, so there's no pulse you can command, but you, you can switch it on and off in a very rapid manner in order to create very short or yeah short impulses that could be used for precision station keeping. And here we also have the advantage that we can really predict very well the thrust level with the electric parameters that that we can um set. So of course, you can go to the full maximum thrust, but you can also go to a very low uh, thrust level, which would then enable this precision station keeping even further because you're reducing
0: basically the level of push you give to the satellite in, in a certain direction. Okay, fantastic. So far, we have talked about you know various situations which are perhaps a bit closer to Earth and uh, in the different orbits With Earth. Is there a potential to use FEEP capabilities for deep space missions?
2: Yes. Yeah, so a lot of... Customers obviously stay close to Earth because there's also where there's more market for, for their businesses, basically. So in Earth observation, communication, that's mostly happening around Earth, obviously. But if we look into scientific missions um, that want to go further into deep space, then it becomes really interesting because you you want to use a technology that can enable this mission. And especially if you go into very deep space, the Delta V that is required in order to to get there reaches values that makes it very challenging for for chemical or uh, or other electric propulsion systems so you need a very high specific impulse in order to to enable that and also as i said earlier um if if you leave the earth's vicinity you're losing the the capability to use the magnetic field in order to change your your attitude of the of of the satellite of spacecraft so you you would have to ha- go for heavy cold gas systems in order to redirect your your um, satellite into the right direction, which again is is heavy. So if you're able to use a system that combines a high specific impulse with the additional capacity to redirect your thrust vector without the need of a of a heavy mechanism or cold gas system, then you're really in a good shape on the overall um, system, and you can. Potentially enable missions that were not thinkable before. Even if you, if you go to, to deep space, as long as you are able to provide the, the power. So that's, that's the, the downside maybe that comes with all electric propulsion at a, a point where you have to say, okay, the further you go away from the sun, the less power you have available on your solar panels. But given that the, our small technology thrusters start at very low power levels, this is something that is even
0: possible, even if you go a bit further away from the sun. Right, interesting. It's in good to have that, you know, flexibility as the as the industry progresses and as we see different missions at different scales, or um, sort of the activities of the big agencies lead in potential downstream applications for for the smaller companies. So, to bring it back to Impulsion specifically. Could you tell us a little bit more about your your Nano AR three product? You know how was how was the product conceived and what what are the advantages or characteristics about it compared to other competing products in the industry?
2: As Alex was mentioning earlier, the company was founded on having FEEP technology to a point developed where it was suitable to put into to a thruster and to a propulsion system that could fly and. The Heritage Nano, as it is called now, was a good way to integrate the technology to, to a product that can serve the market, that can serve the needs of, of our customers. But as it is with every customer, they always want more, right? So the, the, the questions here and there, like, oh, could you also add that feature or could would that be possible with the technology? And of course you listen to your customers and also to feedback you get from, from other players in the, in the market and from the agencies. So we take these ideas and then we look at, okay, what, what is really what the market needs and wants? And we see whether it's feasible with, with the technology we have available. So the idea of using Feed for thrust vectoring mm-hmm. has been around already for a couple of years in the company and in our research partner and we've we've did a few studies just to see whether the feasibility is even there like whether our idea of redirecting the beam is, is actually feasible and we figured out yes it is and we we took that idea and grew it into something more and more suitable for for space application to a point where the Develop the PPU further. We had to develop the the, um, the software further in order to actually be able to control the thrust vector in a way. And then, of course, the, the thruster itself had to grow and evolve into something that can host this capability. And then the Nano AR3 came to life as such as a result of that. So it's been a path of a couple of years that was really driven by the market need for this capability and eventually we have first customers that are really interested in in getting their hands on it want to fly it as soon as possible because they also see it as something where
0: they could make benefit for for their mission with it that's interesting so what sort of missions and what sort of environments is this thruster suitable for Yeah, so as Tony
1: mentioned, this thruster, AR3, has a rather long history in its development, but it's not a standalone development. It's part of a new family of thrusters, and we call it the R3 thruster family. And um, the R in this acronym really stands for resilience and reliability. So what we did over the last years is kind of following up on the quality improvement in our manufacturing and all this setup of industrialization. Also make a huge step in our product development in going from a cots space product, you know, like early stage, new space, uh, kind of um, suitable uh, product to a really uh, industrial space product. Right? That includes, you know, higher radiation tolerance. It includes single event tolerant designs, you know, all the things that you would wish for if you had a kind of um, heritage space, high reliability supplier but you don't want to pay for it right and uh, the reason why we were able to kind of introduce this um, new family of thrusters that is still a a very reasonable prices is that we can build on volume actually right so we have all those customers and all those cancellations that we supply uh, using the nano thruster the classic nano thruster waiting for upgraded higher reliability products so we we were had a reasonable certainty about uh, our market and how many products we can produce and we can sell and as you mentioned before the key really for combining high reliability with low prices is standardization right so having a standard product that is versatile that can fit multiple needs um, is the only way to to ever get there because there will never be a one-size-fits-all solution for propulsion Everyone has different propulsion needs. So this standardization, modularization is really the key. Coming back to the AR3 that if you've been discussing before, it uses a lot of building blocks from the R3 thrusters and another one, which is called IR3. So there's three thrusters kind of share a lot of uh, common building blocks, share the same production line, product assurance, and so on. And in that sense, it is suitable for a very you know, a large envelope of environments. We have customers, as Tony discussed, using the AR-3 in non-LEO missions, you know, going far away and actually using the vector to desaturate their reaction wheels, so to reorient the spacecraft. Right? We have customers building agile, very agile platforms, right, in LEO to have a lot of uh, maneuvering capability. there. So I, th- I think the step uh, to go to a Class of thruster, a new kind of uh, define a new standard for propulsion systems for small sets uh, with this R3 class is really uh, was the right approach to 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 get this kind of flexibility into the market.
0: Right, excellent. Now, you mentioned that you use lots of market insights and you know space agency feedback in the in the development of the Nano AR3, and also as you've just explained that this was something of an evolution in in the product line. But how did you find, I guess a big question, how did you find the industry's initial reaction when you launched the product?
1: Well, obviously, you know, we're kind of uh, biased here um, <laughs> because we are selling the product. Uh, I have to be honest about that. But the reaction was really um, impressive, actually. I mean, people were, I had the impression that people were, were like, wow, you know, this, this is actually possible, right? So the kind of astonishment of having, because we, we told them, look, you know, it's the same thruster, right? So it's not even bigger, yeah? And it just can't do that as well, right? So uh, if you compare the R3 and the AR3. And that was uh, really puzzling for, for people. Obviously, it's still not for everyone, right? So there's a lot of applications that don't need that. And the majority of our customers, you know, will use the standard R3 thruster because, you know, that's uh, they, they have other systems. They have the magnetic field to rely on. They have to, you know, they, they have any way ways to orient the spacecraft and desaturate their wheels so it's it's again not a product for everyone but the the fact that it is uh, and that's what i like so much about this specific product the fact that it's uh, bringing an additional capability to the market is enabling new new business cases but also new exploration opportunities right and that's so rewarding for us right to see that you know Bringing this capability to the market then drives eventually innovation, you know, on platform level, on mission design level, and so on. So I don't expect everyone to use it, right? And that was certainly not uh, their reaction. But the cases where it is used are are the cases that really push, you know, boundaries of what's possible to do with small satellites that cannot have a mechanical gimbal and so on. And we're limited by that before.
0: Right, fantastic. Well, this clear that um, the a lot has been put into the development of the product and um, for impulsion this you know things have come a long way so I guess just to finish up you you mentioned there that the the product does, is enabled new uh, exploration opportunities and new business cases I wondered what you were most you know excited about and looking forward to in the future of thrust vectoring in propulsion.
1: Yeah, I think mobility in space is, in general, something that is very you know near and dear to my heart. I think it's a key a key topic that needs to be addressed in the proper way in order to avoid kind of environmental catastrophe in space. Right. So we have this gold rush uh, situation, and everyone wants to support that. And I'm you know I'm certainly happy you know about all the growth we see in the space industry, and I I really think that space as a as a resource uh, is, is extremely valuable for a lot of uh, people here down on earth but in order to use this resource in a sustainable way the key is really to have uh, reliable and flexible mobility in space right we need to be able to reposition assets in space we need to be able to safely Orbit things we need to be able to kind of clear up uh, space if we need to and so on and being at the forefront of providing this mobility you know is really I think uh, a huge driver for the whole team over here and in that sense I think features like thrust vectoring you know um, higher thrust capabilities you know higher reliabilities for specific missions and so on those are then the results of a um, a very intense dialogue with the industry understanding where they want to put their assets, how they want to move their uh, satellites around, uh, what are the pain points, you know, and what is the kind of mobility needs and mobility solutions that are necessary in order to to make it easy and cheap, honestly, for everyone to be responsible, right, in terms of uh, their own uh, infrastructure in space. We don't have the regulations yet to be really, you know, very thorough with uh, with a lot of things. That's why I'm comparing it to this kind of gold rush in a wild west uh, situation but then people are mindful and if it's easy enough you know to be responsible you know then i think you know um that is a, a big push into um leaving a sustainable situation for for the generations
0: well fantastic i think that's a that's a wonderful vision and i love that idea make it easy for everyone to be responsible i think that's a great way of looking at it Thank you very much to to both you guys, Tony and Alex. It's really interesting to hear about the history and the future plans of um, Impulsion in this area. For everybody listening, if you want to find out more about the business, impulsion.com is the place to go. You can also find information on the products and services on on the SatSearch platform. So yeah, I just wanted to say thank you guys, and um, I hope you have a great week.
1: Thanks so much for having us.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of The Space Industry by SatSearch. I hope you enjoyed today's story about one of the companies taking us into orbit. We'll be back soon with more in-depth, behind-the-scenes insights from private space businesses. In the meantime, you can go to satsearch.com for more information on the space industry today, or find us on social media if you have any questions or comments. To stay up to date, please subscribe to our weekly newsletter, and you can also get each podcast on demand on iTunes, Spotify, the Google Play Store, or whichever podcast service you typically use.